Church, if you have Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to take them out and open them up to Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, If you are new or visiting with us, you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, Every Sunday, uh, when I come up here to preach or somebody else comes up here to preach, what we do together is we open scripture and we just kind of work our way through it. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you should have received a bulletin when you came in. And in that bulletin is the passage that we'll be working off of this morning inside of there. So if you don't have a Bible, you could also just uh, use that sheet of paper that we put in there so that you know what we're working with and that you have the passage there in front of you. Uh, I want to talk to you just a little bit about Alex this morning. So a concept that I basically work with that is true of me and I would wager is probably true of you as well is uh, this. Give me a rule that I don't want to follow and that I don't understand and I will find a loophole. Um, this, is, this worked its way out in my life. Uh, in most recent memory, when shortly after we had our first daughter, Autumn, uh, we, I, so I have lived most of my life just kind of been very freewheeling with my schedule. I could uh, go wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted, right? Like I didn't, I, could, uh, I didn't really have to communicate with anybody else about what my schedule looked like. And so I could just handle my schedule however I wanted to handle my schedule. And uh, that was okay until we had kids. Uh, and uh, it's particularly until we had Autumn. And so I, uh, you know, in, in the beginning of fatherhood, I continued in the same pattern that had always been true of my life up until that point. I I continued on in this pattern of wanting to do things whenever I wanted to do things and essentially doing those things. And so, you know, if I had extra work to do, you know, I can let the work spill over into the weekend a little bit, or I can let it spill into the evenings a little bit, right? That's not that big of a deal. Uh, Or if I want to go somewhere like, oh, I don't really have to communicate ahead of time about that. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and and do it. And then uh, one night, you know, my wife said we have to talk and you know what we have to talk means. And so, uh, so we sat down and we, we talked about this and I was like, gosh, I don't want to live like you're telling me I need to live right now. Right. Like I, you're, you're telling me that I have to communicate, which means something else. I have to plan my schedule And when I am going to do the things that I'm going to do. And then you want me to be accountable to what I tell you that I'm going to do with my time. Do you understand? Like this, not only did I not want to do this, but it, like I could not wrap my mind around what it would look like for me to behave in a different way. I I actually told my wife, I was like, okay, I get what you're asking me to do. And I get that it's important. and And I even understand how it's reasonable. But do you get how hard what you're asking me to do is? I've literally never lived my life like this. And you're now telling me that I have to be organized with my time and deliberate about my time. And that I have to communicate with somebody ahead of time about how I use my time. And so now you start to understand why this was particularly difficult for me. Now, uh, that, that was me. Let's talk about all of us. Um, taxes. How many of you in this room want to pay taxes? Oh, good. All right. I was a little worried there. Uh, How many of you really 
understand and, and make sense of the concept that your government is entitled to the money that you have earned. How many of you, that, that thought just comes naturally to you? Oh, okay, all right, good, all right. So then, how many of you in this room hire accountants at tax season to help you find loopholes in the tax code? Oh, that's good. That's good. That's what accountants are for, right? They help us figure things out. They help us plan this out a little bit. Like, the U.S. tax code is the most extensive set of laws that we have in the United States. And, you know, it's no accident that Al Capone, like, he murdered people. He slandered. He oversaw racketeering and uh, the manufacturing of illegal substances. But those were not the laws that brought him down. The U.S. tax code is the code that brought him down because that is the one that people had been finding loopholes for time and time again. And so they kept putting in restrictions and putting in more restrictions. And so it became this most extensive code that we have. Why do I mention all of that? Because our passage today issues some of the most specific and detailed prohibitions that God issues in Scripture. It is kind of like a tax code, right? The extensive nature of this code, it actually tells us something about God's people. God knew that he had issued a command to his people that they didn't want to follow and that his people didn't understand. And, and he understood the human propensity to look for loopholes when we don't want something and we don't understand it. So what was the command that he had issued? Well, in Exodus 20.14, in the Ten Commandments, he said this, You shall not commit adultery. Every one of the Ten Commandments was meant to establish a way of thinking about an entire area of life. Right? God's intent was not merely to communicate a prohibition, but to establish a way of thinking about marriage and sexuality and their place inside the human experience. And so with this command, what God is essentially saying is that the proper context of sex is the husband-wife relationship. Right? That's what he is establishing here. Here's the problem. That way of thinking was so utterly foreign to God's people. Right. It did not align with what they wanted, and also it did not align with their understanding. Right? And so as a result of this, he knew that they would be looking for loopholes in this command. So God is now going to extrapolate this principle that he established. He's going to take it and spread it out in a very detailed and specific way. Why does he do this? Because he knows something. He knows that unrestrained, Human sexuality leads to abundant corruption. Unrestrained human sexuality leads to abundant corruption. This is what has already been true in the world up to the point before he gave this command. He is aware of it, and so he is putting restriction on it. Okay, so we are in a new series, or sorry, we've been in the series for a couple of weeks now, but this series is called Not of This World. It's talking, God's talking to his people how he wants them to be different from the people around them. So God's expectation is that, uh, hey, you will be holy as I am holy. 
You will be otherworldly. You will live differently in this world. You will be set apart. And so we've kind of worked through holiness. And holiness as a command to God's people is uh, God's call upon his people to display an otherworldly way of life. That is what holiness is. And so let me just say that if you are uh, here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, the way of uh, life that I kind of described to you this morning, it's not one that I am expecting you to live, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not disappointed with you if you are not living in alignment with the things that I'm saying and you're not a follower of Jesus. Like, I don't need you to live this way in order to enjoy spending time with you. This is a way of life that Jesus, followers of Jesus and believers in Jesus are invited to walk in because we believe that Jesus' way is better than our way. And so I'm not here this morning to express my disappointment in you. I'm here to invite you to consider how amazing Jesus must be if we are willing to let him change our perspective, especially on some deeply personal issues. And those issues get addressed here in Leviticus 18. So here, God starts restraining human sexuality. So Leviticus 18 uh, Verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. God is saying, I know how things were in the time and place that you grew up in, and I know how things are going to be in the place that you're going to die in. And he makes it clear to them that you don't get to justify something by saying, that's just the way it is here. Like that is not a proper and appropriate excuse. The way that I'm asking you to live will be different than the way it is here. And so wherever God's people are, we are called to be set apart. So what does that mean? What that means is that we do not live by our heart culture, the culture that we grew up in. We do not live by our present culture or our impulses, but by the word of God. That's what guides us. That's what directs us. That's what establishes our standard for us. So he goes on in verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Why? I am the Lord. Right. If you are my people, then I am your God. You know, many, many of these people uh, in all of these lands that you're going into, they have their own gods that they worship, but you need to know that I am your God, right? No matter where you go and no matter what God you think is in charge in that place, I am your God. You don't look to Canaan to tell you what's acceptable. You don't look back to Egypt to tell you what's acceptable. You don't look to Instagram or TikTok to tell you what's acceptable. You don't listen to the voices of your peers to tell you what's acceptable. They did not and cannot save you. I had mercy on you. I set you free from your oppressors. I saved you from sin. I am your God. Listen to me. Pay attention to what I say is acceptable. 
Right? God is about to issue to them one of the most challenging set of commands that they have ever encountered. Because no culture up to this point, no God up to this point, no human impulse up to this point has ever told them that they ought to restrain the things that God is about to restrain. In fact, demons have enticed them to believe that the things that God is getting ready to restrain are actually good. Right? What in reality is is actually like wreaking havoc among them and has been doing long-term damage for generations, but the demons have been enticing them to believe that this is a good thing, and so God is going to restrain it. So there are some things to know as we step into this. These laws, globally speaking, were out of the blue. Right, So you can look at a lot of laws in the Old Testament and compare them to other cultures and say, oh, you see that, that law, that happens in that culture there, and you see that law in that culture there. These laws that put in restraint around human sexuality, they did not occur in other cultures in this time. Before this, no other nation had come up with laws like these. So if not, like, if not many of these commands, they... they at least some of them make some logical and moral sense to us, right? The things that we read today, we're going to be able to look at them and make sense of them and say, okay, yeah, I get that. I see where that's coming from. Because even if like, we can look at our society and our culture in the United States and say that we're deviating from some of these standards and some of these laws, for the most part, we recognize that we're deviating from them. Right In our moral past, we can look back to something that we used to follow and say, oh, well, we're not following that anymore, but at least we're recognizing that it used to be a restraint and it's no longer there. That is not true for the first people who are receiving this. They had no prior restraint issued. They had no concept that the things that they were doing was inappropriate. But every one of these laws, they were utterly foreign and earth-shattering to the Israelites. They did not want to make sense of these laws, and they did not want to obey these laws. And so the first category of these new laws that God establishes are incest laws. So we're going to walk through them and identify the why behind them, why they're such a big deal. So Leviticus 18.6, it says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. Why? I am the Lord. Meaning, there are other gods who will tell you that this is acceptable. I'm telling you that it's not, and I am the Lord. But think about the human propensity to find loopholes. Okay, by close relative, what exactly do you mean? You can't mean everyone in my family. Like, for example, what about... My parents, right? We can't do that, right? That's okay, right? Okay, so well, in verse 7, he says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So here's the obvious thing, right? Parents are off limits. Okay, great. Yeah, we get that. But notice the positive value that's being taught here. Your mother's nakedness is only for your father. No one else. Your father's nakedness is only for your mother. No one else. So right off the bat, the dignity of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman is being upheld in these laws. Right? You will notice from here on 
that all of these restrictions, every restriction is not about God just being a party pooper and trying to ruin their fun. But he is protecting something of profound value. The family. Right? The centerpiece of a family is the marriage. And the defining behavior of marriage that says mar- sets marriage apart from literally every other relationship is intimacy. The kind of intimacy that would enable the, the, the foundation of a family to be unified, to be together. And so God knows strong families create strong people, create strong nations. And so he's starting here and establishing this. Okay, Okay, God, but what about my siblings? Well, verse 9. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter. Okay, but what if they didn't grow up in my house? Well, verse 9. Whether brought up in the family or in another home. Do you see that Like God is like anticipating every question that they're going to ask or every possibility of a loophole that they might work their way through? Verse 10, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. So let me remind you of something. God does not waste laws. He doesn't waste words. We read these and they feel ridiculous to us because we have had the moral framework established prior to our arrival at this point in time for all of our history. They did not have the same framework that we have. And so these are not ridiculous laws. They are ridiculous people and God is establishing his laws for them. Every law is given for a purpose because God knows that the tribes of Canaan will champion every single one of the activities that, the, that he is warning the Israelites against. He's anticipating what is about to come. He knows the the depraved nature of the people who live in that land. And we are, as we walk into this, going to more deeply examine how far that depraved nature goes, which is why, and you need to listen carefully to this, God gave a command to eradicate the Canaanites from the planet. That's why he gave the command. So from here on through verse 18, God gives abundant restrictions in this area. And I'd I'd invite you, insofar as you can, to empathize with the Israelites. I know that it's challenging, but put yourself in their shoes. God establishes the principle of intimacy only within the marriage of a husband and wife. And and so they ask, okay, but that command, it's it's really about... I mean, they had all of these filters for how they process life. That command... Uh, that command is like really about property, right? Because like to have a family was to kind of have property and have those people be your property. And so, and my family is kind of like my property, right? So maybe, uh, yeah, I can only have my wife, but then maybe I can have intimacy with my family members too. And God is saying, no, you can't. This feels ridiculous to us, but maybe we can uh, do something that hits a little closer to home. If I could be transparent with you for a little bit, Uh, There is a command in scripture that may not be like this, but it's a little bit easier for us to overlook. In the book of 1 Corinthians, God commands Jesus' followers, don't be unequally yoked in marriage. Which means, 
Christians don't marry someone who is not following Jesus. And for a season of my own life, I found myself in the same boat as many modern Christians do and kind of being a professional at finding loopholes in the things that God had said. I say, okay, but I know I'm not supposed to marry them, but what about dating them? Right? Okay, but, but what if maybe they're a little open to Christianity? And it's okay, right? Or, okay, but, you know, she's a really good girl, and we have the same morals and values, so that's good, right? Okay, but she's really great, and you know what? She brings out the best in me. Okay, but, you know, God wants me to be happy, and she makes me happy, right? We have all of these uh, processes that we go through, and God had to take me through a season of discipline and reckoning with the fact that I thought I knew better than he had commanded me. He's saying, don't let what you think seems right be your guide. Let my words be your guide. So then if you move down to verse 19, we're going to encounter some more commands. He, he kind of goes through that, the whole familial relationship thing. But then in verse 19, he goes through five of the most deviant loopholes that you could find. So Leviticus 18, 19 says this. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. So this is a prohibition against this particular action. So on the surface, if you remember a few weeks ago, we kind of talked through marriage and, uh, and all of this stuff about menstruation. And God had just called it unclean. He had not called it sinful. But here he's putting a prohibition that says this is sinful. So we need to, to understand what's happening here. It would seem that verse 19 is not regulating marital intimacy, but it's regulating adultery. And the reason that we know that is verse 20 clarifies to us what God is saying. Verse 20 says, as a clarification of verse 19, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. So you might say, well, that's just adultery. Like, isn't it, isn't it enough for God to just say no adultery? But think about how, the process, how they would process the possibility of a loophole. Like, maybe when God said no adultery, that that's really about God protecting families. And if no one gets pregnant then there's no chance of there being an illegitimate child and so families can stay intact and so she can't get pregnant when she's menstruating so maybe that kind of adultery is okay. God says, no, it's not. It's not. Okay, but okay, all right. Okay, so that's off limits and that's off limits and that's off limits. But God, what about religious rituals? Right? Are there religious exemptions around these laws? Like, if I'm at a worship service that happens to be at a worship service of a false god, and uh, they're doing, having some kind of intimate uh, thing at that worship service, but I'm thinking about you when I'm at that worship service. Like, that, this, this command about adultery, it doesn't include that, right? Like, you're not going to cover that, right? So Leviticus 18.21 brings to us the most vile of all the ancient Canaanite practices. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
So this evil practice is the singular reason that any person who objects to the Old Testament command to genocide of the Canaanites is either ignorant of what the Canaanites did to their children or evil because they see children as subhuman and an inconvenience to be destroyed in the name of convenience. Very few Americans could stomach the debauchery, the pedophilia, the murder that was just normal in the land that the Israelites were going to. Okay, but then why, why in this entire chapter devoted to sexual regulations does God put in this command about not giving your children to Moloch? Because the two things were the same thing. right? Demons understand that to get you to kill your children and to burn them alive, that your mind and your conscience and your emotions need to be numbed and distracted through substances and sexuality. And so verse 22 brings us to the second possible religious exemption that God looks into. He says in verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. So so just think about, again, their mindset. Okay, but what if the intimacy is not heterosexual but homosexual? Like, if it doesn't hurt anybody and it's for a good cause, like in the context of worship, like what about that? And verse 22 clarifies, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Right? Our current cultural moment, nor our desires, nor our impulses make something good or right. God's word determines what is holy. Right? And there is not a single Christ follower that I know that does not need to daily say no to what we desire and, and, and the things that we crave so that we can say yes to God and his word. So verse 23 then brings out the third possible religious exemption. You shall not lie with any animal. And so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So least you think that these people were simply vile and that they were just prone to indulge every impulse that they had without restraint. I want you to realize that the commands that are being given and the things that are being restrained are a part of a demonic trap. Because it was not just that this feels good. It was also that there was kind of a negative approach from the demonic realm. Essentially, people believed, okay, I need to engage in this ritual. Because if I don't give up my baby, then all my children will die. If I don't have intimacy with a man or a priestess or an animal, I might lose my livelihood. Because that territorial God is powerful over the place that I live in, and I need to appease that God in order to make sure that he doesn't destroy me. I engage in these practices, yeah, perhaps because they feel good, but also because if I don't, I know that these gods, which are really false gods and demons, but I know that they will 
destroy and ruin my life. So you can hear their anxiety when God is anticipating all of the loopholes that they might uh, ask questions about. Like, because essentially, at the same time that, yes, God is restraining their impulses, they're also asking, God, why would you ask me to risk this? Like, these gods have real power. We've witnessed their power with our own eyes. Why would you ask us to oppose them? Each of these practices are a demonic trap, right? If I don't have this thing, if I don't do this thing, if I don't indulge this thing, then I can't live. That's literally what they believed. And with this line of thinking, you are in the trap. And he is putting in all of these restrictions and at the same time revealing his power to them so that they don't fall into the trap, so that they can find a way out of the trap. So, verses 26 to 30. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. What he's saying is that um, it's almost like the land has an awareness of what is happening is if God made creation good and with only a certain capacity for the amount of evil that could be done in it. And so he's saying they've been engaging in these abominations and been heaping their sin upon the place that they are living in. And so verse 27, if you do the same thing, don't, right? Least the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Verse 29, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who do them shall be cut off from among their people. Verse 30, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. So what? Just two for us this morning. Number one, recognize the power of our current cultural moment over your mind. Our cultural moment is strange. It says things like, if we feel it, it is true. If we want it, we deserve it. If I desire it, It is good. But God's word leads us in a different direction. Actually, to daily go against our feelings and go against our sense of entitlements and to go against our desires. And here's some hard truths that every person has to come to grips with in order to be mature and healthy spiritually. Instead of, if we feel it, it is true, we would say, feeling does not equal fact. Like, instead of saying, if we want it, we deserve it, we would say, we do not deserve everything that we want. And instead of saying, if I desire it, it is good, we would say, desire does not equal permission. Never underestimate the influence of the cultural moment on you, the influence of cultural mantras over you, because you'll notice 
that every person who does these things does them typically because they want to do them and God's commands often go against our wants. Okay, so then, uh, so what, number two? Your wants change when God's love becomes your source of satisfaction. Right? We want because we think something else will satisfy us. Right, so, so how do you go from looking for loopholes to simply trusting and obeying God's word? Right, You want the thing that God has restricted because you believe that it will satisfy you. And God says two things to that belief. Number one, it won't. And number two, it will actually enslave you. Right, so the, the only thing that's going to stop me from doing that thing is if I want to honor him and pursue him and be faithful to him more than I want to th- want the thing that he's telling me not to go after. Right? But I actually have to have a change in my wants so that I would pr- prioritize my desire to honor him above my desire to have those other things. So the question is, how do I come to the point of wanting to honor him more than wanting the thing? And so I have uh, four R's for us this morning. Number one, recognize your neediness. Right? And this is something that I don't know that we practice enough because we love freedom and we love living in a world that says you can do anything you want and you can be anything you want and you can have anything you want. But there's this reality that to recognize our neediness means, means that we actually need to become deeply broken over our own sin. Like we, we do not often enough recognize the weight and the gravity of sin and the damage that it is wrecking in our lives and the damage that we have done to other people and the mockery that we have made of God with our sin. And so if you are in, in the midst of something or struggling with something, the first part of that invitation is just to, to see the thing that you're struggling with through God's eyes. Right, to, to, to kind of see the perspective that he has on it. And he's not doing it because he's trying to be a party pooper. There's something holy about what God is trying to, to communicate to you. There's something about holy about what he's trying to draw you into and trying to restrict from you. And so in recognizing our own neediness, we just like ask the Holy Spirit to humble you over your sin and just see what happens. Right? Become humble. Before God. The second thing then to do is in that place of neediness, right? In the, the place of neediness, we're like when Jesus gave the illustration about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, so this Pharisee is an ultra religious guy and he comes uh, up to give his sacrifice and he prays, uh, God, thank you that I am not like this tax collector who uh, does all of these terrible things and uh, mistreats your people and cheats them out of their money. And the tax collector takes quite a different perspective. The Pharisee's not recognized his neediness, but the tax collector is, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right, so the first step is to recognize our neediness, and then the second step is to, in the midst of that neediness, where you actually realize it, reflect 
on Jesus's efforts to meet your need. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on human likeness so that he might die for us. Just what extent did he go to in order to extend to you reconciliation and forgiveness? And so then step three would be to receive. Receive God's gift of forgiveness. In that place of neediness, know that God is meeting you and God is extending to you a gift that you do not deserve, but he's doing it because he loves you. And then number four is the call to rest in his love. Rest in God's love. It is a great accomplishment of Satan to make us numb to the truth that God loves us. You, you tell somebody that, and they're like, oh yeah, I know. Like even, even if they don't go to church or anything like that, you say God loves you. Oh yeah, I know. No, nobody thinks about that. Partly because we've destroyed the word love and what it means. But also, partly because we think we're entitled to God's love. Or that, you know, God just does that because it's his job to do that. Without thinking that if someone treated us like we've treated him, the last thing on earth we would choose to do is love that person. But he chooses to love us while we oppose him. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are not entitled to God's love. It should be utterly confounding to us because time and again we tell God, no thanks, I'd rather have this. And we mock him and we abuse his creation. And he invites us, sinners as we are, to experience his love as the most satisfying thing on earth. So satisfying that it might actually change, that it does actually change our wants and our desires. So I don't know what God wants to change today, but I'm going to ask him to do it here this morning and invite you to pray with me in the same vein. God, though we may not struggle with many of the things that you had to restrain in the Israelites, we recognize this morning that there are yet things in us that we do struggle with and that you are seeking to restrain. And Lord, in, in the midst of all of that, um, I firmly believe the truth that when we have an experience, a deep experience and awareness of your love, that that is the thing powerful enough to change our wants and our desires. The places in our soul where our identities 
are disconnected from you or where we seek to find our identity in the things that we want or we find it in the things that we can say about ourselves or we find it in the things that other people might say about us or we find it in the things that we do. Lord, those are all false places to find our identity and you come to us and say, I want to give you an identity of loved. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work a movement of your love inside the hearts of your people. I could stand up here calling people to change until I'm blue in the face, Lord, but my saying that you need to change is not going to accomplish the work of change, Lord. It is the work of your love that changes us. It's your goodness and your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Holy Spirit, would you work a work of love inside the hearts of your people? Not something that we are numb to, not something that we don't understand the significance of, but Lord, work into us the depths or the awareness of how deeply we are loved by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.